You're listening to Passions and Prologues, a literary podcast for each week. I interview an author about a thing they love and how it inspires their work. I'm your host, Adam Sokol, and today's guest is Carrie Maher, author of the just-released All You Have to Do is Call. You may recognize Carrie's name as the best-selling author of the Paris bookseller as well. All You Have to Do is Call is a really, really powerful and important book. It is set in Chicago in the early 1970s, and it is all about Jane, which is an underground women's health organization composed entirely of women helping women. This is a real thing that actually was created. And in this time of people inexplicably continuing to think that they control the rights that women should have and the decisions they can make, this book is just extremely important as a reminder of the places that our country has been and the places that our country may be going. And just, it's a really, really important book about women's reproductive rights, women's rights in general. And I just love, love, love the book. And I love this discussion. I carry the time of the recording, which was last week, was celebrating her one and only child's 13th birthday. So we got into a really interesting discussion about her raising her child and just the myriad things that happens to the first 13 years of raising a kid. We talked a lot about my nieces and nephews, talked about emotions, the things that kids go through for in the first, you know, growing stages of their lives and just so many really interesting things that we all go through, whether we have children or not, because every single one of us has been a teenager. Really love the conversation, really love the wide-ranging aspects of it. Um, Again, she is the author of the best-selling The Paris Bookseller, uh, and she had a chance to take her daughter to Paris. And so that was a really fun aspect of the conversation as well. Uh, I was there earlier this year, so we got to share some quote-unquote war stories about our various trips to Paris. Just a really wonderful conversation. I really think you're going to enjoy it. And all you have to do is call. It's not only an extremely important book, it's an extremely wonderfully well-written book. So I think you're going to love that. And it just came out, so you can go get it right now after you listen to this episode. If you're looking for another book that I am absolutely devouring right now, I am currently enjoying The Sunset Years of Agnes Sharp. This has big, big big like Hercule Poirot energy. Very Agatha Christie-y. It's the story of a quirky group of seniors who attempt to solve one murder while covering up another. Uh, They all live in this one single house and the book opens with a mystery of a murder that has happened in their house. Don't really know what's going on. But then another one takes place uh, in their circle of friends and then all of a sudden they are left scampering from place to place trying to figure out what's going on. It's a group of people, and this isn't a spoiler, who all of them have some sort of background in the world of espionage. So they're senior citizens at this point, but they have some experience uh, trying to figure out these types of things. And hijinks ensue. It's, It's a little bit dark, but it's super funny. I really, really am enjoying it. So I think you will as well. So that's the Sunset Gears of Agnes Sharp by Leonie Swan. Okay, 
As always, you can get a hold of me on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, finding me under Passions and Prologues, or you can shoot me an email at passionsandprologues at gmail.com. Love hearing from you all. I love your thoughts on the weekly episodes, on your passions. Uh, Yeah, feel free to connect with me wherever is convenient. And as always, thank you guys so much for listening. Not going to keep any longer here in this intro. Let's get to my conversation with Carrie Mayher, author of All You Have to Do is Call. Um, passions and prologues. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So, come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Okay, Carrie, what is something you are super passionate about that we're going to discuss today? Well, first, Adam, I want to thank you for having me today. This is really a fun opportunity to chat about um, a passion as well as books, which is one of my passions. Um, But today, you're actually catching me. Today is my daughter's, my one and only child, her is a daughter, her 13th birthday. You have a congratulations on having a teenager. I know, right? And so I'm I'm kind of like really full of like that at the moment. The fact the fact that she is 13 and a, officially a teenager is kind of a mind blower for me. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, you know, when you're a new parent, you just worried that like are we just going to get to tomorrow? Like is am I going to get to the crib and she's going to be alive still, right? Mm-hmm. Like so like I still remember all of that. Um but you know, now you know, it's a totally different kettle of fish. And I, I, you know, she's was recently diagnosed with celiac disease. And so I made her a cake last night. I, I haven't done a lot of baking in the last several years of my life, but I made her, she asked for a specific kind of cake, a confetti cake. So I made it, it was gluten-free. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, and there are like presents on the kitchen table. She started this morning at her dad's place, and, but I'll get her after school today. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess so one of my passions actually, and I, I talk about this so much with other writers I know who are also parents is, you know, this, like, um, this, there's an amazing synergy, I think a lot of times between writing and parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but also there are real challenges, right. And, you know, these milestone moments when your kid becomes a teenager and, and you really want to celebrate those things. Um, so there it is. So that's, that's what I'm full of today. Yeah. So a few things. This is, I, this is really strange. One. So I'm the youngest of four children. I have two siblings. I have two sisters and one brother. Uh, it is today is actually my eldest sister's birthday. We have hit the ages though, where I'll be respectful and not say what her age is. But (laughs) in addition to that, my other sister, Megan, who I know listens to this often. So hi, Meg. She was diagnosed with celiac like decades ago before anyone knew what gluten was or like, so we were basically like, lived in a house where everything said GF or non-GF and we had, you know, the gluten-free pasta and all these different things. And in addition to all of that, I have nieces and nephews who are the ages of 16 through three, through two. So we have, I have also, I've like tangentially seen this growth 
of all of these kids go from, like you said, little babies where we're getting photos and like, we're so excited to go see them. And really it's just like holding a little sack of potatoes to now, like my 16 year old niece is one of my best friends. She's one of my favorite people in the world. And so I want to like, I want to get into all of this. So first thing, like how is, I know it's going to be like painting with broad strokes, but like, how has it been watching your child kind of grow into uh, a tiny human and, and then a almost tiny pre-adult here? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to answer that question without a bunch of cliches. So I'm yeah. just going to say that the cliches are true, and here we are. Um, I, so I, I, you know, I made a choice to only have one, um, and that was the right decision for me. Um, she, uh, I have enjoyed, but it isn't be. I mean, I have enjoyed every single stage of her development. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was still married to her dad, we we, we would talk about that. We would be like. Oh my gosh, it's like she's like squishy and like the sack of potatoes, but she's like doing all this stuff and that's really fun. And then suddenly she was two and and walking around and mm-hmm. doing things and like um and that was so fun too. And then suddenly she was, you know, we were a little worried for a little bit there that she wasn't she didn't seem to be talking and then she talked and you know, then she wouldn't shut up and um and it was all, you know, all of it has just been nothing short of amazing. Like mm-hmm. Just like, how, how does this happen? And then, but then you get to like, you know, 10, you know, like the double digits, mm-hmm. like, how did it get here? And, you know, I, I remember when I was pregnant, you know, they, you know, lovely friends will throw you a baby shower and the pe- people who had been there before me would say, you know, the days are long, but the years are short. Mm-hmm. And nothing has proven more true in my life because, you know, those, I mean, listen, we're, we're talking about the positive things are really hard things about being a parent. And one mm-hmm. of them is like paint dry boredom, you know, like, oh my God, really? We are going to play Elsa and, you know, it was exactly the right age for Elsa and Anna. We're uh-huh. going to do that again. Okay. Let's, or let's get out the Play-Doh. And you're just like, oh my, you're like, I was like drooping over some of these things when mm-hmm. she was a kid. Right. Um, but, it, but then suddenly your kid is 10 and you're like, wow. Um, and then they're 13. And from Mm -hmm. what I understand that from the parents who have gone forth before me, I am now on the like downward part of the, of the roller coaster. Right. Like, I mean, like, so she's 13 today and like tomorrow I'm going to be sending her to college. Mm -hmm. This is what I've heard. And listen, I, again, I'm, I am only tangentially. I am, I'm an uncle. I am, I am not a father, but I will say like, it it's crazy how I think back to, you know, when we were kids and I, I think of it, there's, uh, I always have thought about this thing where like people say both the time and emotions is like when you're young, it's like filling up a glass of water. And when you're young, the, the, the glass is smaller. So like it, our emotions will tend to overflow over this glass of water, but also it's like the time fills up the glass, like, so quickly it's like but it feels like it's taking a long time to fill up that glass of water and then like as you get older you realize like oh my god a year is really not that much time like a school year is really not that much time like I remember summer felt like it took like thankfully a long time when I was a kid and now I was having conversations with my parents this week my my parents have a above ground pool that they've had since I was a little kid and my dad, uh, who's in his 70s, and I was like, hey, you know, if you have some time this week, like I want to close up the pool. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, it's the middle of September. Like all the grandchildren are back in school. Like it's getting cold. No one's going to use it. And I just think about, I, I think you're so right with that. Like I said, it's a cliche, but it's true. Like 
talking to my siblings who have kids, they're like, yeah, you know, it was exhausting getting Eliza to sleep tonight. But then it's also like the next time we see them, they're like six inches taller. And I'm like, what is happening with this guy? It's crazy to think about that. I've never heard that metaphor of the cup. That's such Mm -hmm. a great, that's such a great metaphor for time Mm -hmm. and the, and also emotions, right? Like, and you know, when you're, when you're littler and your glass is small and like, it is easy to overflow all of that. Just sort of, it's true for adults too, right? Like, I mean, I, I, my cup has gotten bigger as I've gotten older and I'm less likely to kind of overflow these days. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so yeah. This, so have there been things, um, there's this this uh, other author, Drew McGarry, who I've interviewed a few times, is a really wonderful writer. And he also works for this website, Defector, where he writes about sports and life. And he is in his mid forties, I think. And he has a couple of kids. And the last one just got done with middle school. And like for all of their childhood, he's been walking each of these kids to this specific bus stop. So it's literally been like throughout all of his kids, it's been the equivalent of like over a decade of walking to the same bus stop. And he jokes about how like some days he's just sitting on his phone and he's not really paying attention, but like all these families meet at the same bus stop. And he didn't realize it until it had happened and gone by as like he was starting summer. He's like, that's the last time I'm ever going to walk to that bus stop with my little kids. And I think he's very good at remembering, like he, he does a really good job with these articles that he writes about like accepting it. He's like, you know, my youngest one is going to high school and my oldest one's getting ready to go to college and that's okay. But like, it's these little things like, oh, I'm not going to walk to that bus stop again with my family. Like that, that's just over but being excited about the the things that are to come for them. So like for you with your kiddo, like, are you, is that something you try to think through? Like, Oh, let's, let's like capture this memory. Let's remember it. Or are they just like, mom, I don't want to, I don't want to do any of these things. What are we talking about here? Um, you know, it, that's kind of a mixed bag, right? Like, you know, Elena g- kind of goes through phases of like being really excited to do th- things with me. Um, like we went to Paris together in the, for her April break. And, you know, and so we will get excited about, you know, doing these, some of these specific things together. We've mm-hmm. watched the entire season, all of the seasons of the Gilmore Girls together twice. Uh-huh. Um, so there are these kind of like wonderful things that mark the passage of time. but. You know, I love this bus stop image mm-hmm. and point because it really, yes, there's the Gilmore Girls in Paris and things like that, but really those bus stop moments, the fact that they are every day and we take them for granted, um, you know, things like that are do are important and they have a real cumulative effect. Um, mm-hmm. Elena also takes the bus from here. And so when she was in elementary school, I always had to like meet her at the bus. Um, and, but that stopped when she went to middle school last year, that last year she was able to get off the bus and come, come to the house herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a little twist. I mean, although I was very glad actually not to have to wait out there in the rain <laughs> um, with the, was always with the dog. And, you know, there was something so wonderful and wholesome about like standing there with the dog, the dog knew what was happening. We talked about the dogs before we started um, taping. Yeah. I, I have a Labradoodle. He's he's with me right now. I'm petting him right now. Um, you know, so I would put the leash on the dog and we would go out and we, he, you know, he knew exactly what was going on. And he would like, he's a Labradoodle, but he would stand there like a pointer mm-hmm. waiting for that bus. Um, and so there was a little twinge when that, that kind of stage of our lives were, was done. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and I'm, I'm trying to think like, yeah, I think that basically answers your question. Yeah. No, so you mentioned I you mentioned Paris. Actually, my partner and I um just went to to Paris actually uh in 
in June as well, we did a big European trip and she used to live there for a while and teach. And obviously uh, people who recognize your name probably recognize it from the Paris bookseller. So I have to ask, did you take your daughter to Shakespeare and Company? Oh, yes, yes. In, in fact, so this was fun. So this is like a world colliding kind of moment. So when when I told her we were going to go to Paris for a couple of days, Actually, maybe she had said this before. She she knew I was writing about the Paris bookseller and, mm-hmm. uh, and about Shakespeare and Company. And at one point, she said, "You know, Mom, the tote bags from Paris from Shakespeare and Company are really in right now." Like, <laughs> and she, so she was, she was so excited to go to, pa- to go to Paris and get a tote bag from mm-hmm. Paris, Shakespeare and Company, and even better because I had been there before and actually signed books there as one of these like kind of like like oh my god pinch me I'm, this is my life can't yeah. this is my life kind of moments um but I when I brought her it was not as big of a deal but I did sign what the stock that they had and Adam the wonderful manager sort of showed us uh, like they were doing some um construction and they showed us what was happening and then he offered her a tote bag <laughs> Ooh. So, and she was just like Yes, please. I would like that tote bag. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Did you? Uh, did she put a note at the? For people who haven't been to Shakespeare and Company in Paris, it is one of, if not the, like most famous bookstores, like in the in world. The- yeah, hundred yes, percent. Yep. And it's just this, like, in addition to being just absolutely dripping with history and all these photos of all of these. Like name, like throw a dart at a wall of author names. That person has been there. And, but they also have, what I really loved was in the upstairs, there's a place where you can basically leave a sticky note. Like you can write a note and you can sort of put it on the wall. Did you, did your daughter do that? No, we didn't do that. Why didn't we do that? We did put a, we did buy a like $10 lock and put it up there with, um, um, at, um, Mm -hmm. at Sacre Coeur. But um, no, we didn't do the sticky note. Um, but it was, I mean, it was really, it was a wonderful experience, like from top to bottom, you know, mm-hmm. the whole thing, I mean, get taking her to the store, um, which is not, I always like to interject this. It's not the original store, which my book is about, but, and my book explains all that, mm-hmm. but it does have, it has, as you said, it's dripping with history of its own and yeah. you throw a dart at, at any wall of writers basically in the last hundred years. And they've all been to one or the other of the stores. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really it was really a magical kinds of kind of thing. Um, where else did you guys go other than other than Paris? So we went to Ireland, Scotland, and Paris. So we they have I live in Cleveland, and there are they're just started this year having flights from Cleveland to Dublin, to the point where like we don't have a ton of direct flights from Cleveland. We're a smaller hub, so it literally took us less time to get to Dublin from Cleveland than it would like me to get to. Los Angeles most days because of the layovers. Yeah. So we did, um, we, we did a red eye into Dublin. We spent one day in Dublin. We took the train to Galway, which is like a, if never, if people haven't been to Ireland, Galway, it's magical. So magical. Um, if people haven't been, and I'll be really quick because no one, you know, you're the guest here. No one wants to hear about my, my European vacation, but it, Ireland is tiny. We literally in, we took a two hour train ride across the entire country like through the entire country and you're on the other coast um so we spent a few days in galway and then we went to edinburgh which oh the best city i've ever been in just astoundingly magical spent some time there and then we went to paris uh for a while so it was um yeah it was so so wonderful when we were in galway we uh 
we spent so much money at the, there's a Irish sweater shop in oh, yes, 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 yes. We spent so much money on stuff there that we had to ship all of our sweaters home. Of course you did. Of course yeah. you, you know, I went to Galway. I've only been there once. I've only been to Ireland one time. It was um, during my junior year abroad that I spent in London. Mm-hmm. And one On one of the breaks, maybe it was early in the summer. Anyway, I went to Ireland. I went to Dublin and I went to Galway. Those were the two places I went. I yeah. took the same bus. Yeah. And um, when I went to Galway, Galway is a great, has a, an amazing literary history of its mm-hmm. own. It has a great bookstore called Kenny's Bookshop where yeah. I saw... Um, Frank McCourt, talk about Angela's ashes at Kenny's bookshop. It had just won the Pulitzer. Oh my God. I was like walking around, um, you know, Galway, like thinking, what do I want to do? I was going to be there for one or two nights. It was Mm -hmm. one of my nights. I was like, what am I going to do? I'm staying at a youth hostel. I didn't know anyone. I passed by and like in the window of this bookstore is like this American writer, Irish American writer named Frank McCord is going to come and he won the Pulitzer. And I was like, oh, that sounds like something fun to do. I'm going to do that tonight. Ah, that is so cool. Yeah. And you know, I, I've always remembered that experience. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Uh. We saw less, much less exciting and much more random. Um, there is a semi well-known character actor and voice actor. His name is Richard Kind. He's uh, the best person I can describe it for people who might know is in the um, the movie Inside Out and Pixar. He plays Bing Bong. Like the oh, I just wrote about Bing Bong in one of my sub stacks. That's so funny. Yeah. So Richard Kind is also, he's also from Scrubs and he's in all these, he's, I think he's like, just shoot me. He's just like this weird, I, I can't, I, for people, I'll put a link in the show notes to Richard Kind, but like, he's just this very strange person. And I literally saw him from a distance wearing a bright green shamrock sweater. And I heard, I was like, I looked up and I was like, I think that's Richard Kind. And then I heard him say to like one of his like people that was with him, like, we got to go over there. The shop's over there. And like, it was this voice that like, if you know Richard Kind's voice, you know Richard Kind's voice. And like, he walked by and I told my partner, I was like, that was Richard Kind. And she looks at me and she goes, I have no idea who that is. And I had to like explain yeah. it. And anyway, just very random Galway stories. Um, you know, it's one of those places where things like that happen. Yeah. So getting back to, to your daughter, they're like, I want to know, I'm curious how raising her, like, does it inspire your writing? Does it, okay, how does it affect your writing process? Um, obviously, like I said, your, your, your latest book, All You Have to Do is Call, which we'll talk about in just a moment, is very much surrounding, you know, women's reproductive rights and, um, you know, these, you know, the Jane Collective and all of these different, very important moments in women's history. And so I'm just curious, like, you know, what inspired you to write that? Did it have anything to do with having a daughter who is, you know, now a teenager? Like, kind of, how are those two things woven together for you? Yeah. Well, she wasn't a teenager when I started writing it. I got the idea, but I, yeah, I mean, so I think globally, I love where I have landed in my writing career. Like I write historical women's fiction and I, I am sort of uh, there are many of us doing this, right? Like, m- like writing like great novels about amazing w- women in history, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think like globally, that project is so important for young mm-hmm. women um, to read these. I, you know, someday Elena has not yet read one of my books, um, unless she has in secret. <sighs> <laughs> she can I, I haven't said that she can't or shouldn't yeah. but like, she just hasn't she's reading Colleen Hoover okay like you know but that's okay mm-hmm. it's 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 <laughs> it's where she is right now sure. um reading is reading 
Um, so anyway, I think globally, I feel like it's important to be, to be, um, writing, you know, women's fiction about strong women making their own independent choices and way in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So like in that sense, I think I'm always thinking about her. Um, you know, when it came to writing, all you have to do is call specifically, um, when I first got the, so she's, she's turning 13 today. I got the idea for it like five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was younger and it did. And, and like, I, I didn't actually start writing it until three years ago. Mm-hmm. She was 10 and it did. I did sort of think to myself, I don't even know if she knows what it is. She was an early bloomer. So like, she knew a lot of things about women's bodies and things at that, at, by, by 11 for sure. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I, I just didn't know. I didn't really know what to say to her about it. Like mm-hmm. she, she always asked me what my books were about. So what I initially told her, she was like, mom, what do you like after the Paris bookseller and stuff? She's like, what are you writing now? And I'm like, okay, well, so I'm writing about a, a group of like women helping other women in Chicago in the 1970s. And that was enough of an answer for her. Um, and, and in fact, you know, actually that was the answer I started giving people at like, in during interviews and book mm. club stuff, because <laughs> I actually think it's become more clear after Dobbs. But when I first started writing pre-Dobbs, I would find myself in a room full of women, like at a book club or something, mm-hmm. and real, and they would say, "What are you writing about next?" And I would have, I had this like beat. I was like, "Oh, I don't really know mm. what the the thoughts are of all the women in this room. I can't yeah. take." granted that I'm preaching to the choir, right? Mm-hmm. So I that was the kind of answer that I gave for a long time. Um and then and then Elena became to bring it back to my daughter, you know, she be, she got to be old enough that um you know and and was developing opinions of her own and stuff which were, you know, liberal leaning, um unsurprisingly given who yeah. her parents are where she's growing up. Yeah. Um, and uh so I was able to say more fully what the book was about. And mm-hmm. so she thought that was cool. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's amazing. And this, I, I think you're right about Dobbs, like changing, not just like the ability to speak more openly about like women's right to choose women's protective rights. Like it has been, listen, I'm from Ohio. You want to talk about like a state that has been galvanized by this specific topic. Like we uh, just had a special election back in August that was got very much a ton of national attention um, because our our government, which is very right leaning, unfortunately, was trying to basically stack the odds against anybody being able to change the U.S. Constitution or the Ohio Constitution, and it was all leading up to our November elections, which is all about women's reproductive rights and like, and it was them basically trying to stack the deck. Pre and so, like, you want to talk about a, a state that people assume is very right wing because it's like ah, so gerrymandered. So I'm getting into the weeds about Ohio politics now, guys. Um, no, it is important. I mean, it's yeah. this is all related, and it is and it is important. And 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 Ohio does seem to be trying to resist. Yeah, and it was like such a catalyst because people. It was an August special election, which they were they had just voted like a year earlier to take off like remove the ability to do a special election in August ever because it's just caught co- it's not cost effective. It costs a lot of money. A lot of people don't turn out. And then issue one came about and so many 
democratic people come out, not even just democratic, like basically people who are like, no, it's like, it's women's rights to choose. This is like, what do you, what are we, why are we even having this conversation? So many people came out that I remember when like the polls closed and I remember going on Twitter to be like, okay, I'm just going to track this all night. And within like 15 minutes, everyone was like, well, it's been decided that this is a win for democracy in Ohio. And it was like, holy cow. Like, so I do think like, obviously you had no way of knowing five years ago and you got the idea that this would be the time like I feel like your book is coming out at a perfect time especially in September like I said leading up into like elections in November and so just for people who might not be aware we've kind of been talking around it not directly about it you want to kind of introduce all you have to do is call because we're kind of like talking about separate aspects of the book without yes Talking yeah, about so, so all you have to do is call is is loosely based on the women of the Jane Collective. So, you know, for readers who have followed me from my first three books, this is um, my first three books were like a sort of a subgenre of historical called like biographical fiction. So it was about real life women who really lived. All you have to do is call takes the kind of idea of the Jane Collective and and the the fact that they existed in Chicago in the early 70s and just uses that as the framework. The characters are entirely made up. So the characters are not the original founders mm-hmm. of Jane like that. So um so it's a departure in a lot of ways um, from my first three books. It's also a departure in that it's um it's got three women narrating the book. So it's three three narratives that are braided together. And so we have Veronica who is one of the founders of Jane um, and, a, and, a, and an abortion provider. And um, and this is all taking place, you know, pre-Roe. So this is an illegal women's health clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Veronica, who's a, a founder and provider, um, her very old good friend, Patty, um, who is a housewife and mother, and that has been her life's work and she's been really happy with it. But when the novel opens, her that's all beginning to unravel. And she's a character who is... Um, was raised Catholic and um, isn't crazy about abortion. She's mm-hmm. not um, that when the when the novel opens, she's she's horrified to learn that there's an illegal abortion clinic in her neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Margaret, who um, is becomes she's a young uh, uh, tenure track professor at the University of Chicago, an English professor. And she starts volunteering for Jane. Um, And she also gets involved with the ex-husband of another non-POV character named Siobhan. So Siobhan and Margaret founded um, Jane together. And Siobhan is divorced from a man named Gabe. And Gabe and Margaret begin a romantic relationship at the beginning of the book. So that's kind of the setup. Mm -hmm. So how did it feel like writing these different perspectives about something that obviously you feel very strongly about as well. Like, you know, not only take, you said taking on kind of a multi-threaded perspective for the first time, but like, how did it feel trying to embody these people who may have different outlooks from, you know, from one another and from yourself and, you know, how, how did that feel as a writer? Yeah. Well, I mean, this book really went through a lot of drafts. I've got to tell I mean, like I, it took, it took many drafts and some sort of outside kind of meta writing, um, to get to know them better. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it was all, you know, I, I had, 
you know, Margaret, Patty, and Veronica kind of arrived in my imagination, all three of them together. And Mm -hmm. I, but then it was a matter of kind of getting to know really who they were and what their character arcs were going to be and what, what was going to kind of move their pieces around the chessboard of the novel. Right. And so that, that took me some time to figure out. I had, I had a general overall arc in mind, but, you know, actually the very earliest draft of this, I thought it was going to be more of like a, almost like a thriller type, like, you know, that the, um, I, this is, this is not really a spoiler because it is an integral part of the history of Jane. They they get arrested, right? Mm-hmm. So I really, I was thinking about that arrest in early drafts as like, okay, it's going to be like, that's the thing that we're driving toward. And that didn't wind up being the case at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it really wound up being a much more um, ca- very character driven piece, you know, mm-hmm. like, really, and it's really about their, the relationships between the three of them and between the, the important secondary characters in the books, so kind of the, you know, the, the, you know, I already talked about Gabe, but yeah. um, Veronica and, and Patty are also both married and their husbands are important. And then there are other important characters too. So did it feel, especially like you said, that you were writing this a while back originally, but obviously it's gone through so many drafts and like with everything going on in the world, like, did it feel cathartic to write this or were you kind of like infuriated being like, God, son of a, why are we still talking about this? Like, how did it feel? Well, uh, actually on that note, like in, in the fall of 2021, I went to a women's march in, in Boston and, you know, there are all the people carrying all these great signs. And yeah. my favorite sign was just, there was some women who was few, a little, probably 10 years older than I was on green particle board and black Sharpie they'd written. I can't believe we're still fighting for this shit. Mm-hmm. Just love that. So, so I don't know about cathartic, but I definitely felt Maybe an increased sense. Of, so I wrote, I was writing and revising before and after Dobbs, right? Mm-hmm. So when Dobbs happened, I think I felt an increased sense of responsibility to the story. Mm-hmm. And and I really, you know, this is really a provider novel, right? It's about the women who are providing this. They call it the service, um, the service to these the women of Chicago, mm-hmm. right? And and providers now are in real, a real bind, right? Like, you know, they, because like at the level of free speech, right? Like there are women come into their office and they're like, we're not even sure what we can say to you mm-hmm. about your, your options, right? So that's a very different situation than the women of Jane were in, in, in Chicago in 1970, but it has, but what, what the, what the situation in the seventies was has resonance with today. And and so I really like hope one of my hopes for the book and when and as I was writing it became more clear to me is that I really hope that providers and the people who love them and support them can feel seen by this book, right? Um you, you know there there were there were various various stages in which the book could have veered more into um, the story of the women who are coming to Jane. Mm-hmm. But I always just on, on a gut level, listen, the stories of the women coming to the Jane are integral to the novel, but they are not the focus of the novel. Right. The really the focus of the novel are the women providing the service. And that was always important to me. And um, and it just became more important as the world turned and changed. Yeah, there's there's something... <laughs> 
it takes a like unique set of emotions and emotional empathy and like and just psychological understanding of other people to realize like in addition to like you said like taking a risk and even offering these services but like doing it for these people who are in many cases making what will be one of the hardest decisions of their lives and like and knowing that day in and day out that is something that you're doing for other people like you know it's it's something that people probably don't think much about when they discuss women's reproductive rights and like they're talking about like the women's right to choose and like all these things that are essential and it makes sense that the people who are making these decisions would be the center of a story but you're right like i'm so glad you have this book out about these people that are making the choice to make the choice available to other people like because it is such a it could it's such a challenging thing that they are going through every single day to have that like to show up with that empathy and that supreme kindness like i this isn't even a question, but just like that essentiality of their existence and knowing how they have to show up every single day, I think is really important to put out there. Yeah. People can't see me because it's a podcast, but I'm like nodding my head. (laughs) And, you know, I think, you know, as you were talking, um, something else I just want to like mention that was part of my, um, part of what, what influenced me as I was writing, especially in the early stages, I started writing this during the pandemic when doctors and nurses were on the front lines of the pandemic, risking themselves, their own families, their own safety mm-hmm. to provide care. Yeah. And I found that to be really inspiring also. And, and I, I think of the women of Jane as kind of frontline workers in the, in the, um, in the fight for reproductive healthcare. Yeah. Right. And so, so I think, you know, the pandemic wasn't, part of my, the genesis of my idea, but mm-hmm. it absolutely influenced the way I wrote these characters. Um, you know, for part of the pandemic or for all of the pandemic, I was actually involved with somebody who was a doctor. So I really saw it. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I got, you know, I saw the way it impacted, you know, people's lives. My sister-in-law is also a doctor and she had to be, um, you know, pro- provide, you know, COVID care in a clinic. It's, it was really hard on doctors and nurses and every, everyone in the healthcare system. Yeah. So very, very scary and very, you know, like, especially then we don't, we don't have time to get into like all the things they then had to go through from people transferring from like transitioning from like, Oh, they're heroes. to like, Oh, they're the enemies. To, like all these different it was for people just like for posterity, if anyone's a little bit younger listening to this, the, the pandemic was just truly the most insane time of probably any of our lives. It was very, very, but it I was a lot. It was a lot. But, you know, I think that that call to service mm. is not something everyone has. <laughs> um, I'm not really sure I have it exactly. I, I, I'm not, I, but I'm, I was fascinated by it. And yeah. I feel like as a writer, it was my duty to kind of crawl inside that mindset and explore it in as much depth as I possibly could. I love that so much. Um, I taken up a lot of your time. I have, I have two more lighthearted questions for you. Okay. Uh, one first, I always end our show by having the author who's come on, give a recommendation of any kind. It could be a book. Uh, it could be a movie. I had someone say, go for a walk. Like it, anything you want to recommend to people that you think they should know about. Oh my gosh. Um, well, uh, I mean, 
All right. Can I, can I throw a couple of just like rapid fire things? Yeah, absolutely. So on, on the subject of like great books about reproductive, um, his, the history of reproductive justice, I would say take my hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez is terrific. Um, house of Eve, by Sadiqa Johnson is also terrific, and Mercy Street by Jennifer Haig is also terrific. On a more lighthearted note, but also a Chicago note, <laughs> The Bear on Hulu, which is yes. about, a, about a restaurant in Chicago. Yes. Such a good show. Such a good show. Just like incredibly well-written, beautifully acted and, and filmed, I mean, just the best that television has to offer. Highly recommend it. Yeah. And if anyone wants to feel uh, traumatized, there's an episode in the second season where a family gets together and has Christmas and it is so perfectly oh, yeah. shot as a person who has panic attacks and <laughs> goes to therapy. I was like, oh my God, I'm so uncomfortable right now, but it is so beautifully perfect. I, I love it so, so much. I totally agree with you. Okay, last question. This is both lighthearted and important. What, do you have like weekend plans with the with the kiddo or like what are like what's like a birthday for a 13 year old look like these days? So we actually celebrated um, with a couple of friends of hers last weekend. One of the nice things about them getting older is that the parties become smaller. Yes. Instead of having like a wild 25 like like hooligans running around your house or like mm -hmm. a, a space. Anyway, so she she actually really embraced a kind of like irony. So she she wanted she always loved these Build-A-Bears. Um, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Okay. So she's, she's always loved bears. And so she wanted to do build a bear with some friends of hers. So we did like a fun build a bear thing. All five of these, you know, 12, 13 year old girls absolutely had the best time. And then we went to the cheesecake factory. Nice. Ah, <laughs> oh, that is so and wholesome had, and adorable. And she, I had pumpkin cheesecake because Ooh. it's all. It is fall. Listen, people didn't know, we didn't talk about this particularly, but Carrie has on her website, her love of like apple picking and fall things. <laughs> and I'm literally going with my nieces and nephews this weekend to pick apples. And oh. I am absolutely a basic fall, autumn loving human being. So I support pumpkin cheesecake 100%. Cheers to pumpkin cheesecake. Yes. Uh, Carrie, all you have to do is call. It's such a phenomenal and important book. I am so, so thankful that you came on and chatted with me. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Adam. It was really, really fun to talk to you. Passions and Prologues is proud to be an evergreen podcast and was created by Adam Sokol. It was produced by Adam Sokol and Sean Rule Hoffman. And if you are interested in this podcast and any other evergreen podcast, you can go to evergreenpodcast.com to discover all the different stories we have to tell. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, 
parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.